You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome to this Friends of Europe launch of a uh, report that we're very proud of. Uh, first of all, I should introduce myself. My name is Giles Merritt. I'm the chairman of Friends of Europe. Um, we're extremely proud that Paul Taylor, on my right, uh, agreed to write this report. Paul and I have known each other for a long time as um, sort of uh, journalists uh, together. Paul, of course, extremely experienced and distinguished Reuters uh, Europe editor for a long time and commentator. I don't think I need to introduce the former Secretary General of, uh, of uh, NATO, Yapta Hobskeffer, and I'm delighted to welcome Julia de Klerk uh, uh, from the uh, European External Action Service where she's one of the uh, defense experts. Before we get into the meat of the uh, discussion, I just want to say one or two things. First of all, I, w I want to remind everybody that in early June, Friends of Europe is holding its Debating Security Plus online debate, uh, June 6th to June 8th. Um, some of you may have already come across that uh, online discussion. Uh, we used to call it the Security Jam. Um, and it allows several thousand people to discuss and interact on a whole range of uh, issues. And the, the previous ones have produced very concrete recommendations that we have uh, ensured um, were taken aboard uh, at NATO, in the Commission, in some of the major member governments of uh, both organizations. I'm going to ask Paul in a minute to tell us the highlights, then I'm going to go to Julia and ask for her reactions to the report, and then I'm going to ask Yap to uh, give us his view. But before I do that, I'd just like to take a moment to, to situate the defense discussion at the moment I don't think there's ever been quite as volatile a time for discussing defense and security policies and also defense industrial issues. The transatlantic relationship, I think we all know we don't need to go there because we don't know where we're going. Um, in Europe itself, the French elections are obviously going to be a very volatile element, but probably no more so than the German elections. And on top of that, we have the, the mystery man, Britain, the, 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 the defense heavyweight, which really doesn't know to what extent it is planning to cooperate with the European Union. NATO, not a question mark. European Union, very, 
very toxic discussion running up to uh, the, the early June general election in England, Britain, I should say. Um, but also another of the big question marks hanging over European defence that we all know has been underinvested, has not been uh, kept up to date, has not really had very clear philosophies on the sort of uh, the sort of role European military should play, uh, especially in the increasingly unstable Mediterranean basin. And for my view, Africa is not really on people's radar screen, but is going to be the major problem for Europe because of the doubling of its population over the next 35, 40 years. So with that, Paul, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Giles. Um, let me start by welcoming you all and thanking Friends of Europe um, for the challenge of writing this report. Very interesting subject, very interesting time. Uh, I was supposed to be retired, but that clearly didn't work out. Um, and uh, special thanks to other, other people in the room, get Cami for uh, challenging me to write it in the first place, Pauline Massard, who's been my kind of boss in this project for the last uh, couple of months, and uh, a big shout-out to Skyska uh, Masaletita at the back there, who has been my uh, indispensable uh, helper and assistant uh, in doing this. Um, as you say, a very uncertain strategic environment, a very uncertain European environment, uh, and um, a very uncertain France in the middle of it. Uh, and when I picked on this title, Marche ou Crève, um, I didn't realize the extent to which the choice in 10 days' time uh, is, could be described as En Marche ou Crève. Um, Certainly, France faces a crunch whoever is elected president in terms of their security policy. Um, some people would say they have bitten off a little bit more than they can chew. Others would say simply that um, France has done a remarkable job over the years of remaining what I perhaps slightly uncharitably describe as a pocket superpower um, with all of the uh, capabilities from nuclear to uh, uh, a full range of civilian military capabilities, uh, a Security Council seat, membership of NATO, of the EU, uh, bases around the world, defense agreements with a bunch of uh, former colonies um, and other countries, including the United Arab Emirates, where France has a, an important base. Um, a British uh, former NATO ambassador said to me, you know, the French can actually still sort of fly around the country, uh, around the world on their own territory or in their own bases in a way that Britain, for example, can't since the withdrawal from east of Suez. So um, at the same time, this is a country uh, that has a relatively stagnant economy um, that has lost ground in terms of its influence in the European Union, uh, lost ground to Germany principally, um, and is having a bit of a self-confidence crisis that on bad days can look a bit like a nervous breakdown. So there's uh, a lot going on inside France, a lot of ferment, 
there are a lot of international challenges. Um, crunch time for France, um, just as the European Union is wondering what, if anything, more it should be doing together on defense. Um, if you look at France's deteriorating strategic environment, I would say that, that the French landscape is uh, marked uh, by four or perhaps four and a half horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, and those are not, not in a hierarchical order. Uh, Trump, the arrival of an American president who's not sure he's really committed to NATO or to European security, um, and who is going to resolutely put America first um, in trade and in international economics, um, and who's a fairly unpredictable character in general, running a so far fairly unpredictable administration. Um, Brexit, um, France is France's most important European military ally and partner, uh, with which it does an awful lot of business uh, and does an awful lot of defense cooperation, uh, has chosen to leave the European Union. Uh, the next two years will be marked by negotiations which almost certainly will have acrimonious phases, whatever the ultimate outcome. And although both sides insist that they want to stay together uh, in, in defense, uh, it raises all sorts of questions about how committed the UK will be to joint defense initiatives uh, with France uh, and, and with other European countries after, as it's and after it leave, leaves the EU. Um, then there's uh, the, the third horseman, uh, Vladimir Putin, um, and a Russia which has uh, annexed uh, Crimea, uh, changed borders by force for the first time since 1945, uh, destabilized eastern uh, Ukraine, maintained a series of frozen conflicts uh, around its borders, um, and which is perceived very strongly as being a threat um, uh, by the countries, the European countries, including EU member states closest to it, um, and which uh, stands suspected of using uh, its cyber capacities to try and undermine Western democracies, um, including uh, last Sunday's French elections. Fourth horseman of the apocalypse uh, is Daesh, uh, the Islamic State, so-called. Um, this is the horseman which looms largest, I would say, in France, larger than any of the three I've just mentioned, probably, uh, because it represents uh, the nexus of um, jihadist uh, groups uh, committed to uh, violence and to trying to stir up violence between Muslims and European uh, Christians or, or Europeans of other faiths, let's say, um, which has territory and bases, uh, which has a, a deep cyber reach into uh, Muslim communities in Europe, and the nexus of that and uh, um, disaffected uh, Muslim youth of mostly immigrant origin in the French banlieues, uh, haven't got much prospect of a job, haven't had much of an education, uh, and some of them, a fringe of them, are tempted by radicalization and by violence. And so you have a va-et-vient, uh, a, a coming and going between 
um, people from the French banlieue who go and get training uh, uh, in Syria or uh, in Yemen or in Iraq and then who uh, maybe fight on the ground and then who maybe return to Europe um, uh, with the intention of uh, carrying on their struggle back in Europe. The, the fourth, four and a half uh, horsemen, if I may, of the apocalypse, um, I would say is, is Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the risk of uh, Turkey, which is a, such a pivotal country, which is the, the gatekeeper for Europe, and whether we like it or not, um, uh, uh, turning increasingly unpredictable and, and unstable. Um, so all this comes uh, is a pretty un unsettling environment for the French. Multiple threats, external, internal, and economic. Um, because if you're France, if you think about what's the worst thing that can happen to France, um, arguably the worst thing that could happen to France would be the collapse of the Eurozone, uh, uh, which could ruin the country uh, and could be more destabilizing than a couple of bombs on a Saturday night at the Champs on the Champs-Élysées. It may not be that in public opinion, they're not aware of that like that. And I think also I would say in the political class, they are insufficiently aware of the, of the risks of non-Europe. But um, that's all part of the picture. At the same time, they are bumping up against the limits of their capacity. The army has done an amazing job. They have intervened more, in fact, than any other European army uh, internationally and also uh, had a role in domestic security uh, over the last five or six years. Um, those interventions have been uh, successful militarily, not always followed up by success, uh, successful diplomacy or politics. So um, depending on how you score these things on your football pools coupon, uh, Libya, you know, they were, they were ahead at half time, but I think they, you could say at the moment that they're several goals behind um, because Libya has become a source of instability, a source of weapons for extremists, uh, a, an uncontrolled source of migration, uh, and a general mess. Um, Mali, well, they went in in the nick of time uh, to prevent uh, Mali becoming uh, the first uh, Islamic State uh, uh, takeover of a, of, of a, of a state. Um, but that initial uh, intervention was successful, but the, the result is that they are still there. Um, they have got their European partners to share in the after-sales service, but what the uh, forces on the ground in Mali are actually doing uh, is a lot of their own force protection. Um, and we don't see any sign of a political settlement in Mali that could stabilize the country, really. Um, similar circumstances in the Central African Republic, I would argue. So they're running, the armed forces are running on empty. Um, the budget, they are spending 1.79% of GDP last year, according to NATO criteria, excluding pensions. Um, that's 32 billion uh, euros. They get a bit more of a top-up for OPEX, as they're called, uh, external operations. But um, they really are running on empty. Some of the – they're using, in some cases, 40-year-old transport planes, 40-year-old um, armored vehicles. 
the burnout rate for helicopters and armored vehicles in, in the Sahel is roughly three times the rate at which they burn out in, in, in exercises in France. Um, currently, only about a third of all France's military helicopters are operational. Um, and there's a sort of general wear and tear, which is reaching a point um, where their operation, their overall operational cap capability is going to be challenged. Um, the military are worried about this. The military, in fact, in, in 2014, the whole, the chiefs of staff, in, in, in an unprecedented move, actually all threatened to resign en bloc if defense cuts went any deeper. Since the uh, terrorist attacks in 2015, the cutting of the defense budget, which had been going on for 20 years unbroken, basically, uh, has been uh, reversed, but it's been rather slowly reversed. And um, typically, this government has agreed to increases which will have to be found by its successor with big uh, jumps, uh, humps in, in, in 2018 and 2019. Um, so... In a way, France faces a binary choice on, on May the 7th. But um, there are multiple options, and I want to talk a bit about those options before we get to the, um, the recommendations. I would argue that notwithstanding the Gaullist doctrine of, of French strategic autonomy, um, you know, they've really reached their limits. The French can no longer afford to go it alone. Um, but they do, because of their strong capabilities, have uh, an ability to lead Europe in defense if they play their cards right. And this leadership will also give them some way of balancing their loss of uh, weight in the economic area and does open, in my view, the possibility of some sort of a grand bargain between the new French president and the next German government on uh, uh, taking the EU forward, both by deepening uh, the Eurozone and by uh, developing defense cooperation. Okay. So just to say what, what the options are, and then we'll come back to my recommendations. So I think essentially, and this is an analytical tool, please don't sort of see this as black and white. There are, there are four broad options which the next uh, resident of the Elysee Palace faces. One you could call Cavalier Seul, the Lone Ranger. That basically, to a very large extent, is what France, do, what, what France does now and has done for the last 30 or 40 years. And the argument for it is we, we have a strong defense industry, we have our own technology, we're the only European country that isn't dependent on the Americans, um, Nobody else in Europe with the Brits leaving has the same strategic culture as us, has the same willingness to, 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 in, to engage in, in uh, uh, expeditionary warfare. We really have to look after ourselves. If we can get a bit of help here and there from others, tant mieux, but we shouldn't put too many eggs in any other basket. Option number two, you could call it uh, l'Europe de la Défense, or even toute l'Europe, uh, is to say, all right, you know, we can't manage it all. It's a fair cop. We're not going to manage it all on our own. Let's do it. Or let's do it through the European Union. There is an unprecedented willingness among our European partners to get more serious about defence. 
let's uh, uh, create a European defense fund, both for research and development and for joint weapons procurement. Let's launch permanent structured cooperation under the EU treaties uh, in order to uh, do both uh, integration of forces and uh, uh, defense industrial cooperation. And um, let's, in general, try and Europeanize defense much more. A sub-option of that, and there are lots of drawbacks of that which we'll come to, a sub-option of that you could call European bilateralism. That's to say, yes, we can't do it on our own. Yes, we need more to work more with European partners, but the EU doesn't have a, a, a military bone in its body. Um, it's just the wrong institution. It doesn't, it's not genetically able to do defense. Um, you know, the, 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 effect, the attempts to deal with the defense so far have been through tools like the, 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 the comp, you know, competition and, uh, and, and market opening. Um, and really, the only serious defense cooperation takes place between the, the great nations of Europe. So we should work closely with the Germans. We should work closely with the, the British. We should keep doors open to the Poles if they get a reasonable government that wants to work with us. Uh, we should... Uh, encourage the Italians and the Spanish to join in, but let's keep Brussels out of it except in the rare areas where it can add value. And the fourth option you could describe as the European building the European pillar of NATO. This has been an, uh, an idea that's been around for 20 years. It's never had much support in France because the French see NATO, as one senior French official said to me, as a solar system that revolves around a single sun and they don't want the United States uh, to have that level of control or influence over European defense policy, and therefore they want to be the sun at the center of a, a separate solar system, I would argue. So, we'll come back to recommendations. Thank you very much indeed, Paul. Let's turn to you, Julia. First of all, I, I hope that Paul's report is going to be a, a valuable tool for you and your, your colleagues at the External Action Service. But he is, I think, particularly good on his analysis of capability weaknesses. And I wonder, your job, as you write here and now, looking at security threats, I wonder how you see Paul's report in terms of the capability shortcomings that it analyzes so well. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, to the organizers for, for the invitation. Um, it's always a pleasure to be back at, at Friends of Europe, but also very much to, to Paul. And I think like uh, many people here in this room, I've plowed through my uh, fair share of uh, defense documents, of articles. They tend to be a bit uh, technical and dry, and I think what you've done uh, is not only to give us a really uh, substantive uh, and uh, insightful analysis of where we stand on, on French defense, but it's really lucidly written as well. So uh, thank you, Paul, I think on behalf of, of all of us who've had a chance to, to look at this. Um, I think to say this is a timely discussion is perhaps an, an understatement, or there's definitely a lot of dimensions uh, to it for all that's happening in defense right now and for all that's happening in France right now. And I think it will probably not be lost on uh, the audience that we have here on the panel a Brit, a Dutchman, and a German talking about the future of French defense. 
Now that, in many ways, though, I think is a good starting point. It brings me sort of to the vantage point uh, for my remarks, because of course that is a message in itself, which means that today the state of French defense, the future of uh, French defense, and France's role within uh, European defense is something that's really of crucial importance to all of us, not just to France. So let me start from there and sort of give you a little bit the perspective on the strategic environment and how that is likely to shape some of the choices that we've just heard uh, outlined, uh, and also a little bit more on the, on the current European context, which indeed uh, uh, I think has, has an important role uh, to play. So on the strategic environment, uh, we've heard it already, uh, and I think we've discussed it uh, at length uh, our strategic environment is increasingly volatile. It's, it's hardening. Uh, conflicts are getting much closer to our borders. Um, uh, there's many more of them, and they also have taken a, a different nature. Um, I think that means that we need to uh, be much tougher on security and defense, uh, and it also means that uh, we need to look at a sort of broader concept of, of security because of the nature of the threats uh, that we're facing. Um, Paul, you've also shown to us, I think, that even a country as formidable as France in terms of its military might and its strategic reach is really getting to its limits in terms of how it can address uh, these kind of threats alone. Um, so it's very clear, I think, to, to all of us that uh, it's important to cooperate more within the European Union uh, and also to stand, uh, stand united, um, to engage globally, even at a time of uncertainty, if there's an instinct to kind of turn inwards, it's, it's simply not, not an option for us. I think something that we can tease out a, a bit more, perhaps from, from your report and the remarks, is of course also the increasing interdependence of internal and external threats. Uh, you've touched upon that, and of course France uh, is really seeing the effects of that being... Uh, 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 really having been the subject of, of a number of, of terrorist attacks uh, over the past years. And again, also seeing the, the links between uh, its communities at home, foreign fighters, uh, and so on. I think that's uh, two things. Again, it means that we need to look sort of a bit more broadly what does security and defense actually mean? Does it mean just going outside? What, what do we also need to do? Uh, on, on other policies uh, to, to increase our security. It also means that security and defense policy, uh, and, and we're seeing that very much these days, has moved from sort of the corner of experts uh, to the broad public debate. It's really the topic uh, right now. And, and of course that has political implications as well. It means that it's... Uh, um, it's an important part of, of our day-to-day -day, uh, debate. It's something that citizens are increasingly demanding um, as well. Um, now, one of the things that we're seeing is that to tackle these kind of security threats, we need a much broader tool set. Um, and that's really something where I would say that points in the direction also of, of the European Union, uh, given that we have a, a sort of setup uh, in terms of linking internal and external policies that's, that's pretty unprecedented. Um, so both in terms of reach of the capacity of any one country doing it alone and also in terms of the nature of how you tackle new threats, um, it points towards uh, more integration. Now, 
when we first, I was one of the members, as, as many of you know, that sort of drafted the EU global strategy, um, where we talked a lot about what does this sort of global, this comprehensive uh, concept of security actually mean. Many of the people in, in the defense community, many of you here actually in this room, kind of raised their eyebrows and said, oh my God, this is the EU talking about a broad concept of security. Basically what we're gonna get is a strategy on development policy and climate change. Now that's not quite what happened, as, as those of you who've, uh, who've looked at the strategy and who've followed recent political developments. In fact, it's a strategy that's, uh, that's very ambitious on uh, security and defense and on, on hard defense as well. It sets very ambitious uh, goals for uh, what we should achieve. Uh, some of the strategic guidelines, Giles, that, that you were mentioning at the outset um, for um, defense. And not just that, it's also actually then uh, meant uh, that we follow up very quickly with an implementation plan. So turning the vision that we set out in the strategy uh, into concrete action. And uh, as a result of that, I think uh, many of you here have, have been pretty breathless over the past uh, few months, certainly me, um, in terms of running after the developments and, and getting a, a really unprecedented number of, of developments uh, decided to really kickstart and, and uh, speed up cooperation in the field of uh, European defense. So be careful what you wish for. Now, that leads me to my second point which is, of course, what's, what's concretely happening on the ground and, and, and what does that mean also, also for individual member states for France. So with um, the December European Council last year, we've had a sort of defense package, if you will, that's uh, uh, set out a security and defense implementation plan that I already mentioned, which defined a new level of ambition the strategic guidance that we've been discussing, where should we be going, uh, and also some concrete follow-ups. Now, uh, the level of ambition is some familiar things and, and some new dimensions. First of all, is of course, to tackle crises and conflicts outside of our union. This has always been an important contribution also to our internal uh, security and obviously to, to global stability. Uh, the second one is capability development for our partners, helping others to help themselves, uh, including, of course, training and, and the expertise and advisory missions that we have. The third element is something that is slightly new and that, again, pertains to the sort of change we've seen in the, the strategic environment, which is protecting Europe. Now, again, that uh, may have raised eyebrows in, in certain uh, corners. This is talking uh, about... Uh, Again, the sort of change that we're seeing in the internal-external links. So what can military cooperation actually do to protect infrastructures, to uh, help fight threats such as terrorism, such as hybrid warfare? Uh, we've already briefly touched upon interference in, in elections, uh, strategic communications. These are all things uh, that really pertain directly to, to our internal security and where a lot more can be done and where sort of strictly, purely uh, um, military approach may not be enough. Um, what can we do concretely? I think we already have a number of uh, concrete proposals on, on the table. Uh, one of them is to coordinate much better 
the way we spend. I think that's one of the things, and I'm sure we can pick up on that in, in the discussion. It's been a logical argument for so many years. I mean, we, one thing is whether Europeans uh, spend enough on defense, and I'm sure we'll hear more than also from, from the NATO perspective, of course. But then the other one is, what do we actually get for our buck? And I think there we really have quite striking numbers in terms of we're spending about half of what the U.S. is spending, but we're getting about 15% of the output. So clearly, uh, there's a lot to be done in terms of economies of scale. And so to launch uh, uh, what we call a coordinated annual review, a sort of much more uh, transparency on what we're spending, how we're spending, which would be a really important and, and first step in identifying what are the capabilities that we need, um, and how can we cooperate better towards, towards getting them? Another one is, I think, uh, that's important is, is rapidly responding to, to crises. One of the core issues, of course, that you have when you're in the game of cooperating, especially when you're cooperating as, at as many as, as, as 28. Um, I think a big innovation that, that we already have now is that with a... Uh, last meeting of uh, Europe's foreign uh, ministers, we've decided on uh, a sort of joint military planning in Brussels uh, for our non-executive missions, that means non-combat missions in, in the military or EU jargon. Um, so to make sure that those training and advisory missions that we have, we can really learn lessons. Um, these are, uh, for those of you who don't know, the missions that we actually currently have in the in Car, in Mali, and in Somalia. So again, if we're thinking of France, I mean, really the core of where, where French engagement is. So again, uh, an added expertise. Um, also, uh, given uh, that this is now uh, in Brussels, um, much closer links to the civilian uh, missions, which again, in, in all these fields, I think these, these three examples are good, are, are clearly an important dimension. Um, another one, we've touched upon it very briefly, PESCO. Um, so how can you step up commitments within the European Union of a number of member states? How can they commit uh, um, to that? We're currently we are discussing with member states what are uh, the obstacles, why hasn't this been used before? Um, how can we make it easy and how can we find a good balance between, on one hand, uh, member states being ambitious and pushing ahead, including states such as France, who are very keen to do this, um, but also being inclusive and having others on board, again, uh, for the reasons we mentioned, that it's important to, uh, to, be, rely, uh, to be able to rely on a, a broad number of partners. So we see a huge uh, dynamism in that field. I think it's coupled as a real game changer in that uh, the Commission has come on board, um, with the European uh, Defence Action Plan and specifically a fund to fund uh, both research in the field to get new technologies, better technologies, and also um, capabilities, so to really boost our industry. Again, something very crucial for France with a formidable uh, defence industry. Um, and, of course, also cooperation with partners, especially NATO. I mention these because this is really important that it goes sort of hand in hand. And I think here, again, we have a, a real shift in that um, it's now very clear that EU cooperation and, and deepening and stepping up uh, the, the security and defense aspect of European cooperation is something that will benefit NATO as well. 
and also benefit other partners that, that we are working with. And it's something that actually people are asking of us very much uh, globally. So that's the, the EU context. What does that mean to France? I've already touched uh, upon it a little bit. Um, it really points, given the, the heightened security threats, given the, the nature of the threats, and then this new dynamism, I really see um, a, um, a real opportunity to France uh, uh, for taking leadership. Uh, so there I would really echo uh, Paul's remarks as well. Um, it's an opportunity to um, get more dynamism uh, and also, of course, for France to take a, a leading or a central role and, and pulling others along. Um, so um, it would do two things in many ways. It would, on one hand, solve many of the, the specific French security threats that we're seeing, and particularly in the field of, of terrorism in Africa, uh, resolve the, the, uh, the overstretch uh, problem that, that Paul has described, as well as, uh, as the economic and, and investment problem that's there. But also, uh, it would help to uh, help France to, to play a leading role within the, uh, the European Union uh, on defence, but not just on defence. And I think there I would pick up and, and probably leave it there uh, on the point of you know the cost of non-Europe. So security and defence has also really been a flagship project now for uh, dynamising European integration. And there, I think France has an important contribution to make. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Let me turn now to you, Yap. It's, it's a, more or less eight years since you stepped down from being the boss at NATO. And in between times, we've had the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. We've had the Arab Spring. We've had a host of well-intentioned commitments uh, by member governments. I wonder, reading Paul's report, how much in it did you fear was going to happen? And how much comes as a surprise? Good question, Giles. Um, and that means that uh, if somebody says good question, you have to think about the answer. Uh, Paul, uh, first of all, compliments for this, for this excellent report, also to Giles and Pauline and Geert, uh, uh, Friends of Europe and, and, and others. Um, had I read it uh, before, Paul, your first, your first horseman of the apocalypse was elected into the Oval Office. Uh, I would have gone from the assumption, and I'm looking straight into Jamie Shea's eyes in, in saying this, I would have gone from the assumption that in, in all Article 5 scenarios, Article 4, Article 5 scenarios of the NATO Treaty, uh, we would not need to discuss it. Uh, but given the fact that the first horseman is in the Oval Office, uh, I'm not so sure anymore. Let's hope uh, we will not lose Pax Americana in that regard. And you feel relatively comfortable when you say this in Brussels or The Hague, where I come from, but if you're living in Tallinn or Vilnius or Riga for that matter, uh, uh, the world looks a bit different. So uh, I, I go from the assumption, uh, although, of course, the first horseman is entirely unpredictable up till now, uh, that we do not need this afternoon uh, to discuss Article 4 and Article 5 scenarios. Having said that, under present circumstances, uh, Giles, and that's also, uh, of, of course, one of your questions, it goes without saying that whatever happens in the Oval Office and whatever happens more in general, Europe and the European Union 
will be forced to take much more responsibility also in the military domain. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you two examples, Giles. In your, in your first introduction, you, you mentioned this. Let's write migration with a capital M. And let's write instability in Africa with a capital I. And that means, uh, uh, and that happened already in the 90s in the, in the, in the Balkan Wars, uh, about which a, a few words in a moment, that we definitely cannot ring the American doorbell if instability will grow in what some, some people dub as a new sort of Afghanistan, which is, which is being created in the Sahelian zone. Daesh linking up with Boko Haram, uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. We, 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 we all know the jargon and we all know the words. In other words, for me, uh, Mali uh, is, is, is not even chapter one, but it's the introduction in the African book the European Union might have to write, including in the military domain. If you look at the figures, uh, UN figures, demographic explosion in Africa, that, that's my first remark. Europe will have to take responsibility, like it or not. And that responsibility will come, and that is not in the DNA of the European Union. I say regrettably not in the DNA of the European Union. In the DNA is not the projecting of hard power. Uh, uh, it is in French DNA. It is in the United Kingdom DNA. It is entering the German DNA slowly, uh, when you look at the white paper uh, uh, by Ursula von der Leyen. It is slowly coming into the German DNA. And my strong conviction is Europe, in this regard and in these scenarios, needs, needs France, the European Union, needs Germany, and needs the United Kingdom. And that's why I hope, Giles, that... Whatever will come of Brexit, uh, hard Brexit, soft Brexit, what will survive is close cooperation by the United Kingdom, not only in the NATO alliance, I go from the assumption that that will remain, thank heavens it will remain, because NATO without the, European, uh, uh, the United Kingdom is also a, a completely different NATO, but that the UK will continue close cooperation in the domain of defense with the European Union. It will be rather difficult and complicated what form uh, that, that should take. I mentioned Mali. I'm also, I'm also going to mention the Western Balkans, becoming more and more instable, every unstable, every single day. Look at what's happened in Serbia. Look at how the other horseman of the apocalypse, uh, Putin, is entering the Western Balkans. Look at the instability in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Look at what happened or what threatened to happen in Montenegro uh, on its way to, uh, to entering NATO. Uh, look at Macedonia. Sorry if there are any Greeks in the room, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. When I mentioned Macedonia as a NATO Secretary General in the press conference, and I did, I did it on purpose from time to time, the Greek ambassador was rather quickly on the line, Sekgen, don't, don't ever do this again. Uh, uh, but that's, that's a sidestep, of course. Instability in the Western Balkans might well lead, might well lead that Europe, A, looks at the Balkans with more political attention than it does up to now. Let's not forget, K4 is still in Kosovo. K4 is still there. K4 is still necessary and, and needed. And let's not expect that if things go wrong in the Balkans, might go wrong in the Balkans, we can ring the American doorbell. Because the Oval Office will say, sorry guys, like Clinton did uh, in the 90s, uh, a long time before he decided to come in with NATO, uh, after Srebrenica and after the unperformed debacle. So let's, let's also identify the Western Balkans as a scenario where we need 
the European Union and we, we need potentially a strong European military presence. For that we'll need France, for that we'll need Germany, for that we'll need the United Kingdom. Second remark, we, we can spend all afternoon and evening here discussing what the role of France should be, what, what, what the options are, as, as, as Paul indicated them in his excellent report. But I must give credit to the first horseman of the apocalypse in the sense that he finally seems to start convincing the European Union members slash NATO allies to honor their commitments on defense to honor Wales, uh, to honor the 2% uh, GDP. Because let's face the facts, dear friends, dear, co dear colleagues, many European armed forces are in a deplorable state. Let me speak as a Dutchman for the Dutch armed forces. They are in a deplorable state. There's no way they can, they can enter into any commitment uh, the Dutch armed forces had in Afghanistan uh, 8, 9, 10, 11 years ago. Absolutely impossible. And that goes, uh, uh, Jamie, with a few good exceptions, uh, across the board in NATO. So it's fine to discuss pooling and sharing, but there should be something to pool and share. And if there isn't anything to pool and share, it is jargon. It, it, is, it is whistling in the dark. So I say, when the European Union members slash NATO allies do not take their defense budgets seriously, uh, all theory uh, might, might, might fall apart. On, uh, on intervention, uh, I, I mentioned already the Western Balkans and, and Africa. The political problem facing us, facing NATO, I think, as well as the European Union, facing France, Paul, as well, as you rightly indicate, is that where we intervened, Iraq, not a smashing success. Afghanistan, it, it was dominant during my mandate in, in, in NATO. If I'm optimistic, my conclusion will be the jury is still out. Taliban is back, supported by Putin, the other horseman of the apocalypse, not only in the Western Balkans, also in Af Af Afghanistan. Libya, NATO was congratulated with the intervention in Libya. Uh, Obama was leading from behind, but the European NATO allies needed the Americans. I can't finish this sentence by saying to make this operation to a success. But Libya was an intervention. Some will say half-hearted. And Libya is a mess. In Syria, we did nothing... I think the, the, the count is between 400,000 and 500,000 fatalities. Uh, Mali, relevant for our discussion today, my rhetorical question is, where were the European battle groups when the Mali situation arose? I'm grateful for the French, Paul, and others that they did intervene finally. And now it's, as you know, a UN operation where the French stay, stay out of that operation. But ha having said that, Mali, for me, and it's again back to Africa, was the situation where I would have hoped, because you can't ring the Oval Office doorbell, where well, I would have hoped that Europe would have been able to project uh, what looked like uh, hard power. And I'm happy with the discussion taking place in the European Union uh, that, that Europe, we, I'm a European as well, uh, we, we are fighting uh, uh, our, our, uh, our DNA, uh, because hard, hard power is still, uh, is, is, is still difficult. F fi finally, um, on, the, on, the, on the options, uh, I, I always try to teach my students uh, uh, that all our political leaders, uh, including the next French president, 
Uh, I have a certain preference who that, who that might be, as you will not be surprised. Uh, uh, and I, I conclude that the two candidates in the, in the race, in the, in the second tour of the presidential, they, they have a rather uh, uh, radically divided uh, uh, picture uh, of France's role uh, in the world. So let, let's, let, let's hope that, we'll, we'll, uh, that the French people will make, will make, the, right, uh, will make the right choice. But I, th I think our leaders are, are uh, ruled uh, by uh, the Macmillan mantra, events, my dear boy, events. So I have my doubts, uh, Paul, uh, if, if any French president or any French government uh, will, will, will uh, stay awake at night and think, what, what will we do? Will, will we go cavalier sale? Uh, am, I, am I going to, uh, to go for a European pillar in NATO? I've never entirely understood what that means, a European pillar in, in NATO, but apart from that... Uh, will, will, will we go for a European defense union? Uh, I don't know if you need a defense union. might be a point for the discussion. If you need a European defense union to do what Paul is rightly advising uh, Europe to do, uh, I, I do not know. I, I leave that open to the discussion. One final remark I would like to make. Um, I was already referred to quite rightly that, that I'm a Dutchman. Don't forget the medium-sized and smaller countries in this debate. Uh, I realize that European Union and to a certain extent also NATO is of course about France, is about the UK, is, is, about, is about Germany. But the Dutch and the Belgians and the Danes uh, and, and others are looking for anchors. Where, 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 do, we, where do we find an anchor uh, uh, to, to be motivated and to motivate our public opinion to be, become serious about the fence? There's now a, there's now a German-Dutch army corps. The Dutch did away with all their tanks. The Dutch now are leasing tanks from the Bundeswehr. Fine, great. I was against the decision, of course, to do away with the tanks, but we, we still have a few tanks back in a German-Dutch army corps, working together with the Belgians uh, uh, in the domain of the Air Force, uh, with the Brits traditionally, uh, uh, the Marine Corps, uh, with, with the Belgians at sea uh, buying, buying frigates together. Uh, pay attention to the smaller nations uh, where, they can, where they can find their, uh, their anchors. Uh, and finally, Paul, you wrote this excellent report on France. We need the French. For heaven's sake, we need the French. Because I'm not certain about the British role after Brexit. Germany, it will take some time before Germany takes, for reasons we all understand, uh, a place like France in the European Union framework. I think that will not happen in the foreseeable future, although they are making, making the, right, uh, the right moves. We need the French. We need France. We need a country which has the projecting of hard power in its DNA. Let me finish it there, John. Excellent. Thank, thank you very much, Jan. Now, we've got half an hour left. <clears throat> I want to reserve five minutes right at the end for Paul to talk about his recommendations. But right now, I'd like to get an idea of how many people would like to come in with a, a question or a comment on what we've heard so far. We'll start with Jamie Shea, and then we'll go over there. Excellent. Jamie, the floor. You need a microphone? Can we? Yeah. Thanks, Giles. Yep, thank you also for mentioning me a few times. Very kind of you. Uh, Cami is 
actually cited in the report, and he's an actual Frenchman. I'm only a, a, a Francais d'adoption. Uh, so uh, I've, I've no doubt he will take the floor as well in just a moment. But first of all, Paul, I'd like to, like everybody else, thank you for writing a, a very witty even, uh, spiritual report and getting a lot of French people to speak very candidly and honestly uh, about the situation. I thought it was a, uh, a great sort of louange to what France has done, but I thought it was also a very realistic and candid expose of the challenges in the future. Um, what seems to have come out of all of this is, is a sense that with overstretch, and even if France would spend 2% of its GDP on defence. It wouldn't obviously solve all of the problems of overstretch. Uh, very sort of critical choices can't be deferred in the future. Uh, things will have to be given up. Priorities are going to have to be set. France perhaps won't be able to play in every circle, uh, being everywhere simultaneously. What Yap said in, in his inter intervention is the sense, and I share, that maybe the French defence role will become less material I, you know, la France partout, and more sort of intellectual and organisational. The French will drive the concepts, the frameworks, the policies, but then perhaps delegate, particularly in a broader European, uh, even transatlantic setting, to others, uh, sous-traitance, if you like, subcontracting, more the, the role of actually filling in some of the gaps, for example, maybe in the Balkans or maybe in Eastern Europe uh, with uh, the Article 5 commitment of, of NATO or maybe supporting the Americans in the Middle East if, for example, France felt that it was more important to focus on the Mali or, or, or the Sahel. Uh, so what I'd like to put to you is could you sort of conceive in the future a sort of a paradigm where uh, France sort of you know, occupies all of the boxes from an intellectual organisational perspective in terms of you know, driving the politics, driving the, you know, the momentum in NATO and the EU towards this reorganisation of European defence, but sort of steps out of some of the more military roles, which it doesn't have the capabilities to do any longer, and subcontracts to others. When you were debating these uh, issues in Paris, did this sort of idea uh, appeal in any way? Uh, and if there were to be that kind of subcontracting, what would France insist on keeping for itself? And what do you believe it might realistically believe it could farm out to others or persuade others uh, to, to take on? So that would be my question. But again, uh, I'm really looking forward to your next report and, and I hope it's as well written, as interesting as, as this one. So thank you. Paul, if you'd like to have a go at Jamie's question, but can I tag on just a sub-question? It is, is the spirit of Samaru in Lancaster House dead? Uh, the answer to the latter is, it's not dead in France, but there's a question mark about how alive it is in the UK. Um, the French don't know whether they can still trust the Brits, even though the Brits say they can. Um, so, uh, no, I mean, and, and indeed there are things in Saint-Malo and in Lancaster House which are locked in for 50 years. I mean, the two countries have committed and built facilities uh, to jointly uh, uh, virtually test their nuclear warheads, for example. And that's not something you can sort of flick a switch off and say, well, we're going to have to, do, you know, have to find, find a different way of doing this. So there, there's lots of money being sunk into it, and there are long-term commitments there. But the question, I mean, they're about to, they're on the point a brink of validating as operational a, a joint expeditionary force. Um, but the question about whether that force would be used and under what circumstances the UK in its current frame of mind uh, uh, would be 
uh, willing to go out and do slay dragons in the world uh, post-Afghanistan, post-Iraq, um, post the vote not to do so in Syria, um, I think is a big question mark. Um, coming to Jamie's point, Jamie's a very, very interesting question and very challenging question. I see the French, I think, see a rather different division of labor. You know, in the 90s, it was Camille, actually, who pointed this out to me, so thank you. Um, in the 90s, the French, at, at, at the high point, had about 9,000 people on UN uh, duty uh, in the Balkans and elsewhere, in Lebanon and so on. Now they have 900, uh, uh, mostly in, in Unifil in Lebanon. Um, uh, they've sort of got out of the low-end business of, of sort of peacekeeping, um, taking, taking children to school, as Mrs. Albright said about the, what the 82nd Airborne didn't do, right? Um, and I think that the French are more in that kind of American view. What the French do, because they, they A, can do it, B, are good at it, and C, nobody else does it, is first entry is going in and kicking down doors and killing people if they have to. Sorry to, if that offends anybody in the room, because I know that the notion that defense occasionally involves killing people is something which in some areas of Brussels is not entirely accepted. Um, but, you know, so that the division of labor tends to be, you know, that the front, as, as it used to be said, but the Americans used to say, you know, the French make the meal uh, and the Europeans will do the dishes afterwards. Um, that what's happened in, in reality is that French have gone in and done first entry. Should they have consulted more? Would Europe have stepped up to the famous plate if they had consulted more? I don't know, you know. Um, but they, they've gone in and, and, and done the hard end, the nasty stuff. Um, and then they've roped their European partners in uh, using a mixture of, of kind of diplomacy, moral blackmail, um, and so on. Um, uh, as the after-sales service, um, as the sort of stabilization force to do the things. And the, the, the French, I think, broadly, when you, when, you, when you sort of put them on the psychiatrist's couch, they accept the idea that, that there's a need for a comprehensive approach. But as you will recall from the drafting of the global security strategy, what they really wanted was lots of hard security in there. And the French, as, as, as another one of your colleagues described to me, in the, uh, I quote her in the report, uh, they came in, in with the line basically that, you know, the world's, uh, the world's on fire, the house is on fire, uh, this is no time to talk about spreading peace and brotherly love. Um, there's a sense, they have a sense, uh, that they are the only people, along with the Brits, um, who are serious about the hard end of hard security and that Europe has to get real. And a part of that, now we haven't talked, mentioned the N-word on this panel so far, is nuclear deterrence. They also feel that the Europeans get a free lunch um, on the back not only of the American nuclear deterrent but of theirs. Um, and one of the interesting questions as European defense cooperation in one way or another develops will be... Um, what if anything happens about a European nuclear deterrent or some extension of French doctrine, which is there en filigrane, it's there in kind of nods and winks and hints, um, that the French umbrella might cover more than the hexagon? Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, let's take a question over there. And um, 
I've noticed that towards, as we get towards the end of our time, more and more hands go up. So could I get an idea if any more hands are likely to go up and coming? Nobody over there. Okay. Yes, please. Aris Kokinos. I'm from Eurobolt.com. A question for Mr. De Hoop-Sieffer. It's not a, about Macedonia. It's about the Eurobonds. Uh, some commentators, some uh, journalists advocate the use of Eurobonds in order to cope with more uh, defense uh, expenses and to reach the 2% uh, GDP budget um, goal. Do you think it is a good idea or do you think this could aggravate the gap in the spread um, between the French and the German interest rates? It seems to me uh, rather complicated because I, I, I can tell you now that I... I tried this at a certain stage uh, during my NATO mandate. Uh, uh, there was some enthusiasm. It was not euro bonds. It was financing defense by issuing bonds. Uh, th there was some enthusiasm, uh, but finally the Americans blocked it. Uh, I'm, I, again, uh, Jamie, Jamie is my witness and is uh, nodding uh, affirmative. Uh, it, it, it didn't work, and I, I quite honestly think it is too complicated. Uh, I can imagine another uh, uh, solution, by the way which was brought forward by uh, Jochen Bittner of Die Zeit in Germany, and he said, why not leasing by the European allies, this was on, 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 on NATO again, but you could widen this, uh, I mean, not necessarily NATO, why not leasing the equipment Obama prepositioned and brought, and brought to Europe, uh, be because that, 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 would, that would, from a budgetary point of view, perhaps be easier. You lease the equipment from the Americans, uh, and at the same time, of course, work on your own defense budget. I'm afraid, to cut a long story short, that, that, uh, that bonds, and certainly euro bonds, uh, with the, let's say, the political connotation of euro bonds in, in, in another domain, uh, where people aren't in favor, but also many people are against, would be too complicated in my mind to, to go and finance defense. I think I would simply say, I mean, I think it's a good question because um, I, I do think that leveraged finance of some sort can play a role. I mean, after all, how is it possible that we have the Juncker Fund, which allows us to use leveraged finance to build uh, railways and roads and infra civilian infrastructure, but we can't do the same thing to build, say, hardened aircraft shelters on an airbase? So, you know, and, and if you can do it for hardened aircraft shelters, because that's um, public infrastructure, uh, why can't you, couldn't you theoretically uh, use that, weapon, that tool um, to borrow money uh, to procure um, uh, weapon systems in, in common, like fighter aircraft or something? So I, I, I think that it's a possibility. There, the French have to be careful because there are some of those sort of ways in which they try to use it to, to solve their own fiscal problems, like, you know, let's, let's in, in, take defense investment out of the 3% deficit criteria, or let's create a, um, euro bonds that, that pay off the defense debt, which is, you know, sort of, and that would just conveniently get the French debt down from nearly 100% of GDP to 61% just on the Maastricht border. So, you know, you have to be careful about this not being used as a dog-ate-my-homework excuse for, for fiddling the books. But the idea that leveraged finance could play a role in, 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 in smart procurement uh, of, of, of weapon systems, I think, is certainly worth exploring. But I think it has to be said that the 
European Union governments or member states record on civilian procurement isn't very good, but it's better than on defense procurement. Kami, you wanted to come in. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, happy to be here in, more in my, uh, under my NATO hat than as a, as a Frenchman. But uh, let me just uh, raise a, a couple of points that come from Paul's uh, excellent report. The, the first point is the issue of resources. I think that we t tend to a bit easily uh, state that it is impossible to reach that there is an overstretch and that the resources are not there and will not be there for the foreseeable future. Um, two elements. M my assumption is that a, a good defense budget, which, by the way, uh, is the commitment of all uh, presidential candidates in the next five years, uh, is uh, a roughly an additional 7 billion euros uh, on the French budget, so moving closer to 40 billion euros on defense per se, excluding pensions and all of that. 40 billion euros, that additional 7% is technically, it means moving 2% of the entire state budget. So which is a lot of money, but not that much when you think about it. And we're not talking about a, a massive increase. When I look at public spending, it's less than 1% of public spending. The housing policy in France, which is insane, by the way, but that's not our discussion today, alone costs 40 billion euros a year. So if you simply change, adjust that to making it a slightly uh, saner policy, uh, uh, you, would, you would have the margins you need and far more than that. So I'm just saying that it's very important to keep those figures in mind when you look at and you don't start saying it's impossible to reach what is necessary. Another figure for that purpose is if we were spending what we were spending in the early 90s, which at the time was not exactly wartime, impossible, unacceptable, unbearable, we would be spending on the same terms 58 billion euros today. Uh, um, so th those are, I think those are important figures because we tend to have lost sight of what it means to be serious on defense and, th and the fact that it is budgetarily acceptable. By the way, when it comes to NATO, if we were, if Canada and, and Europe NATO were at 2%, it would be an additional 100 billion euros on the plate there. So I think it, it really matters. Just one point and one question on, on France finally. I think the key question for me is, is twofold. Uh, when it comes to uh, the relationship with France, or France with NATO and EU, is how far France wants to be involved in the deterrence and defense package in the NATO environment. And the, what I felt was a bit of a late engagement in the enhanced forward presence, but which is now a significant engagement, is, is interesting um, uh, in, in that framework v versus the sort of hard crisis management uh, that you just uh, described. And uh, le bonheur des sables chauds, du Levant et du Sahel, and so on and so forth, which is the natural tendency of the French military, which is to turn to that. By the way, and this is, I think, one of the most interesting developments of the last five to ten years, is that this is where the French-US relationship is developing in intelligence, in, in the military, which has a negative impact on other forms of cooperation because then you don't really need to be that active in NATO and France has fallen to be a very inactive in NATO operations. Uh, or you don't really need to work with your European partners because in a way 
you get that special relationship, and I use that term in, uh, on purpose, with the U.S. Uh, when it comes to the real uh, uh, priorities of, of fighting terrorism in the Levant or in Africa. Thank you very much, Camille. Paul, you replied to Camille's question. I then want to ask Yap and Julia whether they agree that the, that the, the defense budget's pendulum is now beginning to swing back and that we're going to see a catch-up in uh, capabilities and outreach. And then, at the end of all that, your recommendations. Pauline wanted to ask a question. And since she's my boss, she, she should definitely be. Um, no, I mean, thank you, Camille, for making those points. Obviously, uh, you ask the French, uh, uh, should we be spending more on defense? The, the, the general view is yes. Should we be spending more on defense instead of on social welfare or instead of housing? The, the answer tends to be no. Um, those are difficult political choices uh, in, in peacetime. Um, and although there is currently a perception, France being at war, uh, France is, is in a state of emergency, um, I, I think that nevertheless, you know, getting people to really buy into a step change in, in defense spending, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical. But I, I think a lot more can be, you know, I pro probably more can still be wrung out of the system a little bit. Jean-Claude Mallet has done a great job with that. Um, and, and I think actually that one of the quick wins for the next president, I say this in the report, it will be to get the soldiers off the streets. Uh, and, and stop them doing, you know, essentially guard duty and reassurance duty. It's a difficult one, sensitive politically, because the first time a bomb goes off somewhere and they'll say, ah, you see, this new president comes in, naive kid, he, he stopped the state of emergency, he sent the soldiers off, back off the streets, and now look what happens. But, you know, the, the soldiers being on the streets has perhaps been reassuring politically here and there when the soldiers have been attacked they've fought back and have therefore prevented perhaps worse attacks but it's not clear to me that it's an efficient use of the military resource um, but the general question again we talk about division of labor the French view is NATO is essentially there for territorial defense for collective defense uh, we don't expect NATO very, to go very much into the South and the Middle East and so on for political reasons, but also because it's difficult to get consensus and so on. So since we are one of the few powers that is willing to go outside and to go into Africa and have historic ties there and so on, it makes sense for us to carry the burden mostly there and for us to do what we do in NATO, we do partly as a sort of donnant-donnant. Uh, we do it so that you know, the Estonians and the Poles take Mali seriously or send uh, a token presence to the Central African Republic. But um, there is a degree of specialization there. Yes, they enjoy, clearly the military hugely enjoy the, the de degree of special relationship that they've developed with the United States, which is, is a miracle. You, you who drew my attention to that wonderful quote about how the cheese-eating surrender monkeys a decade later had become the frogs of war. You know, they, they've become the go-to ally for, uh, for America in, the, in Africa and the Middle East. Um, who would have imagined that? Um, so, voila, um, let me, with that, pass it back to, uh, to Giles. I just want very quickly um, to ask Julia and Yap whether 
defense spending is going to start to swing back adequately in light of the fact that on both sides of the English Channel, the military have said that the damage is now almost irreversible to their capabilities. So is there going to be enough money spent to fix the problem of Europe's really weak military force? I, I would hope so. <laughs> um, I think what we're seeing, I mean, the, we've heard it already, the, the defense spending, it's something that uh, Europe has maybe neglected a little bit. It's something that's been publicly uh, also difficult, certainly in some member states, um, to, to defend. But there I think we've really seen a step change and also on the remarks of, of the DNA and is, our, is defense in our DNA. I do think that what's been happening... Um, we see a real realization that we cannot go on as before and, uh, and all the commitments on increasing spending have been made and we see real movement as well on, on the budget, not, um, not just in France but also crucially, for example, in, in Germany and so on where it's been very sensitive uh, in the past. So I do think there's a, there's a real um, commitment there. Will it be enough and, you know... It, also soon enough, um, that's another question. I think we need to keep the momentum there. We need to keep the, the commitment there. I think that's why it's also so important, again, uh, to work uh, on uh, incentivizing through the European Union uh, the cooperation, on incentivizing spending more uh, and, and doing more. And there I, I want to pick up on, on one point also made by, by Jamie on the sort of partition of labor or so on, because I think it's a really important point. I, I think there we come back also to, to France's role. It's really important uh, uh, in the European Union that we have these different perspectives. And so we have countries such as France who are big on hard security, on uh, going in first, but... Um, and, and who carry others along, for example, Germany. And I mean, by the way, there are very uh, detailed proposals between France and Germany on what they can do bilaterally and what they can do through the European Union. And I think that will really be an important motor on, uh, on also bringing along uh, a lot of the other member states. Uh, so there needs to be this kind of division of labor. And uh, yes, we need to take hard uh, security a lot more seriously. But as, as Yap, you've also just said, I mean, uh, look at the kind of interventions that we've had. Um, on the whole, I mean, certainly that alone hasn't done the trick. So we need that division of labor that we have people who are willing to go in, who maybe also are willing to go in first, but then also others who can do the surround work. And I think if we keep that balance right, um, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. Thank you. Yeah, irreversible damage. Yeah, well, I think the final point Julia is making is, is, is very, very relevant. Uh, uh, we don't have time to discuss intervention or non-intervention, but we have not been successful in, on, 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 on many occasions. And I think the public opinion sees that. And that makes it difficult, and that's the link with defense spending. That makes it difficult uh, 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 to convince public opinion that apart from healthcare, education, infrastructure, one should be, become serious on defense. I'm, I'm, I'm not without confidence when I, I, I look at Europe uh, uh, that we see some nations, I already mentioned uh, Germany, 
and others to finally to finally come round. Uh, but as a former foreign minister, I must also add immediately that in the Council of Ministers, when it really comes to the crunch, uh, as a foreign or defence minister, you tend to lose the debate uh, over the decades uh, from from the minister responsible for healthcare, because the night before. On television or on Facebook or whatever, there has been uh, there has been a, 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 a tension for an elderly home where people have very serious dementia, uh, and where lots of lots lots of funds are needed. So I mean, you you need I always say, and let let me end on that note, Giles, that you 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 need non-usual suspects to make the case for defence. I mean, with all due respect to myself and ourselves, uh, I mean, when usual suspects, when I say in the Netherlands uh, we should finally take defence seriously, the reaction is, yeah, of course we understand that guy. Uh, he's, he's so suspect. He was NATO Secretary General. You, you, you need, and that is not easy, you need to, to, to convince and rally people in society uh, who are not in military uniform, who are not civilians dealing with defence, uh, to... to, to the beginning of, of, of seeing of any form of success. Uh, so I, I see Putin has helped a lot. I, I, I must pay him a compliment, uh, one of the other horsemen. Putin has helped a lot, of course, after Crimea and his hybrid warfare. Uh, but for, for, for instance, uh, what he's doing in the Balkans, in, in Afghanistan, in Taliban, I mean, you, you, you need those stories and you need to bring them across. And that is the major, the major point and the most difficult point, I think, Charles. Excellent. Thank you. Paul? You've got three minutes. You, you, you describe the problems. Now, now fix them. <laughs> All right, the three-minute Taylor doctrine. Or, or, you know, start your stopwatches. <laughs> so you, 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 the, the more perceptive among you may have uh, already guessed that uh, I am uh, not in favor of Cavalier's sale. I don't think it's feasible anymore, but that there will continue to be a significant part of Cavalier's sale nevertheless. But... Um, I, I come down on the whole uh, in favor of a lot of European bilateralism with enough EU involvement to provide incentives for the smaller countries to uh, do their best, uh, to use the leverage of EU research funds uh, uh, and EU uh, market mechanisms where they are appropriate, and they're not always appropriate in the defense thing, where you have a monopoly uh, supplier and a single client. Um, but uh, I, I think that, that, therefore, EU bilateralism is probably, European bilateralism is probably the key way forward, but with uh, the EU uh, playing a best supporting actor role, if I can put it that way. Um, it has to be a long-term effort, defense uh, progress, cooperation doesn't take fast. That doesn't happen fast. Think how long it takes to go from the conception to the first flight uh, of a, uh, a European aircraft. Um, so you, that means that most politicians have to now commit to do things uh, that will not come to fruition not only before the next election, but probably during their term in office, even if they were to get re-elected. Uh, that's difficult, uh, but it's not impossible, I think, when in a, with, with the kind of threat environment that we've been talking about, and with uh, Mr. Putin as one of our best recruiting sergeants. Um, I think central to this, not only France, but central to this is Germany. This is about the battle for, for Germany, really. Uh, if Germany is able, as it shows so, some signs of, uh, uh, of being, uh, wanting to be, 
uh, to step up its game in defense, not only to spend more, um, but to change, to evolve its strategic culture. I don't see in the next decade, uh, maybe I'm being pessimistic, and my next report is about Germany, so follow this space. Um, but uh, I don't see the Germans doing first entry in the next decade. Um, but perhaps in, in, in within a generation, yes. Um, and again, we have to be careful what we wish for. You know, we're all children of people who fought in World War II, mostly in this room, I would think. Um, and uh, uh, we all have good reasons. And as Willy Brandt said, you know, there, there, I've seen worse things in my life than young Germans standing up for peace. Um, so uh, we we have to we have to bear that in mind. But in order for this to work, the Germans have to have to bite in a couple of difficult bullets quite quickly. Nobody's going to produce more um, defense goods with the Germans if they're not sure they can sell them to their clients. Siegmar Gabriel has really s turned the clock back when he was uh, economics minister. Um, and agreements that were made between France and Germany in the early 1970s uh, were sort of torn up uh, or, or, uh, in a way that has, means that the French defense industry currently has very low confidence in their ability to export uh, to their uh, uh, cl important clientele in the Middle East and Central Asia and so on, uh, things that they produce with the Germans. That will have to change radically if Europeans are going to produce anything more together. Um, another thing that will have to change is there has to be pooling and sharing will not work if there's nothing to pool and share, as you said. But pooling and sharing will also not work if uh, France, for example, cannot be sure that pool and, pooled and shared equipment will be available to them on the night. And this, again, we were badly set back in Libya. Because if you remember in Libya, this was a, a, an operation that had the blessing of the United Nations, it had the blessing of NATO, it had the blessing of the EU, and France and Britain went to NATO and said, please, sir, can we have the AWACS for our operations? And the Germans, where the AWACS, the NATO AWACS force is based, surveillance planes, said, well, you can have the planes, but you can't have our crews. And their crews were 40% of all of the crews. So... That was a huge setback again. And again, if people are to trust pooling and sharing, it's got to work like that. I move swiftly along. Um, explore a trilateral defense treaty between Britain, France, and Germany. Not now, but once Britain has accepted the terms of its exit from the European Union. Uh, otherwise, it becomes a distraction and a complication in the, in the Brexit talks. But certainly, anything that binds the Brits in in that way... Uh, is of value, and maybe there's uh, uh, mileage there. PESCO, yes, I would say, let's give PESCO a chance. Um, that means getting uh, a first, uh, launching a first thing, possibly this year, first project, with uh, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Poland, if possible, um, open to all who are willing and able, but we must be a little bit demanding about what willing and able means and make sure that countries that engage in this kind of cooperation actually do so with extra money, with new money, uh, and, and not simply uh, as a way of trying to get defense on the even cheaper. Um, a European Research and Defense Fund and, and Development Fund already in gestation. 
a separate, possibly European defense procurement fund using leveraged finance to encourage joint procurement um, of the essential systems that have already been identified by the European Defense Agency as the ones that we need. And the ones that we're really desperate for, they are, uh, are airlift, uh, they are uh, um, uh, reconnaissance and intelligence, drones, um, uh, refueling, uh, all of these things are the real uh, capability. Because I mean, just a, a little anecdote aside for, 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 for 10 seconds. Did you know, did you realize that in the middle of the Ukraine crisis, when the Russians had annexed uh, um, Crimea and were, and were causing all sorts of mischief in Donbass, the, it was Russian and Ukrainian companies, private companies, that were flying the French troops to Mali and around the theater, the huge theater of Operation Serval, which stretches from the uh, Atlantic to, the, uh, to Lake Chad. Now, fortunately, the Russians and the uh, Ukrainians didn't pull the plug on this operation at any time, but talk about a strategic vulnerability. After that, you know, don't tell me too much about uh, strategic autonomy. Um, and, and likewise, I mean, from the French perspective, I mean, because the French missed the, missed the boat of drones, they had to buy American drones. Because they, they have nobody to teach them how to operate the American drones, so it's a private company of Americans who are operating these drones for the French uh, in the Sahel and having to and, and interpreting the data for them. Now, again. I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not against a, a sensible use of uh, private uh, uh, resources to augment your defense capability, but then don't come and talk to me about European strategic autonomy. Final thoughts. Um, political ownership. I think I, I like an idea which Elisabeth Guigou and maybe other people have come up with, that there should be an annual meeting of a European Defense and Security Council that would be an EU summit, uh, leaders plus defense ministers and chiefs of staff or whatever, who would sort of take ownership. They would work on a, on a timetable. They would have boxes to tick. They would have things to achieve. Um, you know, I, I, I don't always like box ticking. Though. And in the very long run, I don't think we can avoid the nuclear issue and some sort of dialogue about nuclear deterrence. With that, I've gone way beyond my time. That was always my weakness as a journalist. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Yap and Julia, for a really interesting discussion and an excellent report. Thank you.